Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 12, Chapters 26 through 33, Part 8, So-Called Primitive Accumulation. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. Okay, so uh, we should uh, uh, get going. This is the, uh, the last session. And uh, I just want to remind you of something that uh, came at the very beginning of this, uh, where Marx talks about uh, how difficult it is to stick with this. Uh, analysis and he kind of says well that he's powerless to overcome uh, these difficulties uh, the only way he can deal with it is by forewarning and forearming those readers who zealously seek the truth there is no royal road to science and only those who do not dread the fatiguing climb of its steep paths have a chance of gaining its luminous summit so the fact that you're all here means that you've gained the luminous summits. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what you see from uh, that uh, perspective. Uh, I, I think it's interesting to reflect uh, one thing about this book as opposed to the other volumes of Capital. Uh, one of the things I've always appreciated about it is the, the way in which Marx changes his writing style uh, depending upon what he's looking at. Uh, so sometimes he's being very kind of snickety about uh, you know, how much for the linen versus the coat and all those sorts of accounting things. Sometimes he's being tightly analytical. Then suddenly he starts talking about the fetishism and it all becomes a bit magical and a bit mystical. And uh, then it comes back down to earth in terms of the grubby world that is being described by the factory inspectors and then it comes back again to the theoretical level and then it goes back into the details of what's going on uh, in the factories uh, or what's going on in the Industrial Reserve Army. And I think that, that <clears throat> the shift of, of, of writing style has always intrigued me. And, and it's something that, that, that uh, after some time of dealing with uh, Marx's capital, I kind of figured I'd try and experiment with that in my own work. So that when I took up certain topics, I would kind of say, okay, well, what kind of style fits this question of, uh, say, the building of Sacre Coeur in Paris or something like that, which is a much more sort of light stuff and in the limits to capital, it's heavy duty theory and uh, the like. So, <clears throat> I think shifting styles is sometimes uh, an interesting thing to do. And we have a sort of convention, I think, uh, 
which is that you're supposed to select a style at the beginning and stick with it throughout, whereas Marx kind of says, okay, I'm now talking about something else, I'm going to change the style, and I think it actually makes uh, for some very interesting uh, reading. Um, which poses then a sort of interesting uh, question. Uh, in part eight, where Marx is dealing with the so-called primitive accumulation, or sometimes it's original accumulation, uh, the chapters are very short. Uh, we're used to, you know, those lengthy pages and pages and pages of historical information about, you know, what's, what's going on in factories or what's going on with the Industrial Reserve Army. But suddenly he sort of uh, has a very choppy style, and just two pages on this and three pages on this and four pages on that, very choppy. And it, it's kind of always intrigued me as to, as to why he decided to do that. And, and because the topic is not in itself unimportant, in fact, it's a, it's a hugely important topic. Uh, but he's kind of just, you know, okay, let's take a cut at this, let's take a cut at that, let's take a cut at this. And it's almost like he wants to sort of uh, uh, push us along in terms of what the nature of the argument is very, very quickly uh, so that we get some sort of sense of the rise of capitalism because this is a section where he's dealing with the historical rise of a capitalist mode of production and everything that uh, preceded it. And and that as as you know, like I say, that's not a small topic. If you want uh, more information about what he feels about you know, all of those issues, and then one of the things I would suggest is you look at some of the chapters in Volume Three of Capital. Um, now, Volume Three has a, a, a lot of details about things, but there is a chapter uh, on the history of merchants' capital, which is relatively short and very relatively coherent. There's a chapter about the history of money, capital, and banking and finance, which is uh, similarly so. There's a history of of of, of ground rent. So, and so, if you want, if you if if you're interested in Marx's historical understandings then you might want to go do that. And they're not, they're not hard to read. I mean, you know, it's good historical writing and you get some very interesting sort of insights uh, from reading that. Now, you can also uh, add to that if you want in that there's about two, about 150 pages of the Grundrisse, which are also about historical materials, but they're more difficult to, uh, to deal with uh, because of the, the way they were, they were written. But... But these, these chapters on the history of merchants' capital and the history of commodity and, and money capital and history of the, are actually um, very well worked out and, and uh, very, very coherent. And of course, one of the things you find there is that Marx is very concerned with showing how uh, revolutionary the transformation was in each one of those categories. Uh, one of the arguments I have, for example, with uh, uh, David Graeber's book on the history of debt, uh, which in many ways is a very interesting, very good book, but, but, but Graeber seems to think that debt means the same thing in ancient Sumer as it does today, whereas Marx basically says, no, uh, that's not the way it is, that, that 
that that debt is reconfigured through the rise of capitalism into something very different. The same thing is true about land rent. He will say there's a distinctively capitalist theory of land rent, uh, and you cannot go back to the feudal period and um, and, and understand contemporary land rent uh, by looking at what's going on in in, in feudal world. So. Uh, Graeber's book is actually very good, I think, in many ways, in, in terms of its historical reconstruction uh, of uh, <coughs> some of the aspects of indebtedness, <coughs> but uh, fails, I think, to take up the whole kind of question of the revolutionary transformation of what this debt is, is about. Uh, put quite simply, uh, there was no debt market at ancient Sumer. People weren't, weren't, weren't buying and selling debt. Uh, it was there, and so the forgiving the debt was a different story in ancient Sumer, and having uh, a jubileum on debt was a, a different sort of story than, than, than would be possible in, in contemporary conditions. So <clears throat> Marx is here dealing with the historical origins, and the historical origins are significant because if you go back uh, to uh, page 273. <coughs> you find that Marx is there in that, so this is the chapter where Marx is talking about the <coughs> excuse me, sale and purchase of labor power. And he poses this question. Why this free worker confronts him in the sphere of circulation. <coughs> Excuse me, I think I've got a bit of a cold or something. Why this free worker confronts him in the sphere of circulation is a question which does not interest the owner of money, for he finds the labor market in existence as a particular branch of the commodity market. And for the present, it interests us just as little. We confine ourselves to the fact theoretically, as he does practically. One thing, however, is clear. Nature does not produce, on the one hand, owners of money or commodities, and on the other hand, men possessing nothing but their own labor power. This relation has no basis in natural history, nor does it have a social basis common to all periods of human history. It is clearly the result of a past historical development, the product uh, uh, of many economic revolutions of the extinction of a whole series of older formations of social production. So Marx is here kind of saying, you know, I'm dealing with a situation where I imagine there's a fully-fledged labor market there. Uh, I'm looking at the way in which the capitalist goes into that labor market, uh, picks up workers and you know, starts to employ them in, in production processes. But he kind of says the fact that they're there and that there's a labor market there is a historical product. And so in some ways, what he's now doing is, is going back uh, to this thing and saying, uh, because it didn't interest us back uh, here, it is of interest. And therefore, uh, we're going to have to look at the way in which it is a historical product. Now, the The opening of this uh, considerations on uh, on primitive accumulation uh, contrasts 
the sort of story which the political economists were spinning in their own work as to how uh, labor power came to be a commodity and how it came to how the labor market came to be. And Marx's comment on that is primitive accumulation uh, in their thinking plays approximately the same role in political economy as original sin does in theology. Uh, long, long ago, there were two sorts of people, he says. One, the diligent, intelligent, and above all, frugal elite. The other, lazy rascals spending their substance and more in riotous living. The legend of theological original sin tells us is certainly how man came to be condemned to eat his bread in the sweat of his brow. But the history of economic original sin reveals to, this, to us that there are people to whom this is by no means essential, never mind. Thus, it came to pass that the former sort accumulated wealth, the frugal people accumulated wealth, and the latter sort finally had nothing to sell except their own skins. And from this original sin dates the poverty of the great majority who, despite all their labor, have up to now nothing to sell but themselves, and the wealth of the few that increases constantly, although they have long ceased to work. So this is the, the, the story, as it were, of a, uh, it, it happened because, you know, some people were frugal and some people, you know, weren't, were being irresponsible and the irresponsible people needed to live. So in the end, they worked for the frugal people. So that's the way it worked. Um, and, and of course, there's a long history of this way of thinking. Uh, and and uh, in this chapter, we find Marx actually, in a way, acting as a precursor to Max Weber. Uh, Max Weber kind of saying, uh, you know, there was a great deal to... Uh, the, the Protestant ethic had a lot to do with the rise of capitalism. And so Weber saw the rise of capitalism as uh, the Protestant ethic, which was uh, uh, about frugality and, 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 and restraint and... Uh, and, and and sort of uh, delayed uh, gratification and all the rest of it, responsible uh, kind of stewardship of uh, money and, and and the like. So so Max Weber kind of turned this whole thing. Well, Marx is saying, you know, that's a joke. That, that's not how it worked at all. Uh, it wasn't just simply that we have frugal people around. In actual history, he says, it is a notorious fact that conquest, enslavement, robbery, murder, in short, force, play the greatest part. In the tender annals of political economy, the idyllic reigns from time immemorial. Right and labor were from the beginning of time the sole means of enrichment, this year, of course, always accepted. As a matter of fact, the methods of primitive accumulation are anything but idyllic. <clears throat> and then, of course, he's going to go on and talk about you know, various incidents and aspects of, of, uh, of primitive accumulation. But one of the questions I think it might be worthwhile asking, is this a historically true story that Marx is telling? Was it always about, you know, sort of violence, robbery, murder, and, 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 and the like? And I think the answer would be, well, it wasn't always like that, but a lot of the time it was. And one of the things uh, is, uh, uh, I think, uh, important here is to kind of say, well, you know, what is it that Marx is looking at to tell us uh, his version of what primitive accumulation was all about? 
And he says here, free workers in a double sense that they neither form part of the means of production themselves, as would be the case with slaves, serfs, etc., nor do they own the means of production, as would be the case with self-employed peasant proprietors. The free workers are therefore free from, unencumbered by, any means of production of their own. With the polarization of the commodity market into these two classes, the fundamental conditions of capitalist production are present. The capital relation presupposes a complete separation between the workers and the ownership of the conditions of the realization of their labor. As soon as capitalist production stands on its own feet, it not only maintains this separation, but reproduces it on a constantly extending scale. The process, therefore, which creates the capital relation can be nothing other than the process which divorces the worker from the ownership of the conditions of his own labor. It is a process which operates two transformations, whereby the social means of subsistence and production are turned into capital, and the immediate producers are turned into wage laborers. Primitive accumulation, therefore, is nothing else than the historical process of divorcing the producer from the means of production. It appears as primitive because it forms the prehistory of capital and of the mode of production corresponding to capital. So he then talks about emancipation of the work uh, of the uh, of uh, the serfs, uh, the uh, way in which uh, the retainers of the feudal estates were released, uh, and uh, talking about also uh, could be talking also about the enclosure of the commons. The expropriation of the agricultural producer, he says at the end, of the peasant from the soil is the basis of the whole process. The history of this expropriation assumes different aspects in different countries. So here he is conceding that there's maybe different stories to be told depending upon where you are, and runs through its various phases in different orders of, orders of succession and at different historical epochs. Only in England, which we therefore take as our example, has it the classic form. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with this by saying that there's a classic form. That is, is he setting up the English case as being, if you like, the classic form, the norm against which everything else is going to be judged? He got some criticism from this from various people, various times, from the Russians and, 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 and the like. And later on, he kind of conceded uh, that he shouldn't have actually selected England as the classic form. He should have said, well, it happened this way in England, but it also happened some other way uh, in France and another way in Russia and another way somewhere else. So that he becomes much more sort of uh, uh, geographically sensitive, if you like, about how uh, this uh, process of primitive accumulation works. Uh, depending upon where you were later on. And he didn't kind of say, okay, the only one I have to look at is the classic form, which is the English one. But what we're largely going to get here is, of course, the English one. Uh, and he did write, uh, you know, fairly late in his life that he sort of, he didn't exactly apologize, Marx rarely apologized, but he kind of said, well, uh, yeah, I should have uh, uh, recognized that primitive accumulation uh, uh, occurred in diverse ways in diverse places and that therefore I should not have treated the, the, the Western version, as it were, as, as uh, the, the, the only version. So chapter 27 then talks about the expropriation of the agricultural population from the land. And this is done 
by uh, illegal means and also by legal means. And part of the story here is the way in which <coughs> illegal ac activity of, uh, of, of, of dispossessing peasants from access to the land uh, gets paralleled uh, eventually by, by, le by, by passing of laws and, and, and legal uh, strategies uh, which legalize uh, these processes of expropriation. And, and he talks about uh, the, some of the, the struggles that have gone on uh, between the peasantry and the state, between the peasantry and those who are seeking to uh, expropriate uh, the, 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 the resources that the peasants utilized uh, to reproduce their own conditions of, uh, of, of labor and life. Um, interestingly, however, the, the, the initial laws uh, were against expropriation. There was an attempt uh, in the early years uh, to prevent uh, the expression of uh, more monetization and commodification and the expropriation uh, of, uh, uh, of the peasantry. Uh, so he talks about uh, the, the legislation under Henry VII, uh, uh, which was very much about trying to uh, prevent the illegality uh, which was going on and to, to legislate uh, against it. Uh, but then he kind of says the actual process uh, of expropriation became uh, so uh, widespread that it was very difficult uh, to find a legal framework that could actually prevent it uh, happening. And what in effect happens is that there is this uh, general ex expropriation going on, uh, which is of, of, of the peasantry, but then that is added to, as he, and as he says on 881, the process of forcible expropriation of the people received a new and terrible impulse in the 16th century from the Reformation, the consequent colossal spoliation of church property. The Catholic Church was at the time of the Reformation the feudal proprietor of a great part of the soil of England. The dissolution of the monasteries, which was Henry VIII's great contribution to this, hurled their inmates into the proletariat. The estates of the church were to a large extent given away to rapacious royal favorites or sold at a nominal price to speculating farmers and townsmen who drove out the old established hereditary subtenants in great numbers and threw their holdings together. So uh, this is something that uh, uh, is going on. And it's, there's this footnote, which I hope you had, did take a look at on page 882, which is footnote 9, where... Uh, Marx is here actually taking on the question of the spirit of Protestantism uh, may be seen from the following among other things and he talks about the way in which uh, uh, the spirit was not about frugality at all it was about uh, austerity for, for the, the peasantry and austerity for the, uh, for the, for the populations and treating uh, the pe people through the poor laws and things like that in very punitive uh, ways and in fact sending them sending people to jail. Uh, he talks down the bottom of this long uh, footnote uh, that uh, you could that there was legislation that would enable the parish to contract with a person to lock up and work the poor, and to declare that if any person shall refuse to be so locked up and worked, he shall be entitled to no relief. 
So when poor people were looking for relief, they had to actually, uh, uh, in a sense, agree to be imprisoned. Uh, and and uh, there's, a, there's a long theme here, which is about the incarceration politics uh, in relationship to the, the lower classes, which of course is still with us as a big issue in, in, uh, in our own society. Uh, so there's this, this, this story which is going on of the, the gradual over two centuries, the expropriation of the agricultural population, uh, in which after the restoration of the Stuarts, the landed proprietors carried out by legal means an act, act of usurpation which was effected elsewhere on the continent without any legal formality. They abolished the feudal tenure of land, they got rid of all its obligations to the state, indemnified the state by imposing taxes on the peasantry and the rest of the people, established for themselves the rights of modern private property and estates to which they had the only title. And then came the glorious revolution, which brought to power William of Orange. And, but this is, I think, now an interesting passage which we, we ought to think about. The landed and capitalist profit grubbers, they inaugurated the new era by practicing on a colossal scale the thefts of state lands which had hitherto been managed more modestly. The estate, these estates were given away, sold at ridiculous prices, or even annexed to private estates by direct seizure. All this happened without the slightest observance of legal etiquette. The crown lands thus fraudulently appropriated together with the stolen church estates insofar as they were not lost again during the Republican Revolution, formed the basis of the present princely dom domains of the English oligarchy. And then he talks about uh, uh, the new landed aristocracy on the next page. The natural ally of the new bankocracy, of newly hatched high finance, and of the large manufacturers, at that time dependent on protective duties. The English bourgeoisie acted quite as wisely in its own interest as the Swedish burghers who did the opposite. Hand in hand with the bulwark of their economic strength, the peasantry, they helped the kings in their forcible resumption of the crown lands. Communal property gets uh, usurped forcibly uh, and it gets turned over from arable land into pasture land, uh, which, which means, you know, the the, the whole agrarian economy is being transformed. And by the time you get to the 18th century, uh, the law itself now becomes the instrument by which the people's land is stolen. Although the big farmers made use of their little independent methods as well. Uh, that stealing was the Enclosure Acts, uh, which enclosed the common lands and turned the lands into private property, which was going to be held by uh, the people. Now, What's, what's interesting uh, about this, again, is, is, is two things. First, uh, the, as, I've, as I've mentioned, Volume 1 makes all kinds of assumptions about the nature of the social structure within which capital accumulation is occurring. You, you really have to, a two-class situation, capital, labor. Uh, they're in relationship to each other, they're producing with each other, and so that's the kind of framework. And there's no problem of realization, and there's no problem of getting wage labor, and there's no problem of getting, uh, getting resources. But here you have a picture uh, of, of 
the, the, the prior situation uh, in, in which there are actually many economic agents involved in what in, in effect is a vast conspiracy to defraud and, and, and expropriate the peasantry and to instantiate a regime of private property on the land, uh, which, is, which is exclusionary uh, and which is also about, it's monetized and commodified and therefore uh, has a very special uh, kind of character. Uh, and what this does is to create a, a, an economy of a certain sort. And he says, has a very interesting kind of line. He says, the 18th century, however, did not yet recognize as fully as the 19th the identity between the wealth of the nation and the poverty of the people. This is a very interesting formulation, which I often resort to myself when, you know, people talk about, well, how, how well is New York doing these days or something? And the classic answer would be, well, actually, New York's, you know, New York's doing extremely well economically. It's just the people are doing very badly. And that's frequently the case. And actually, I remember I was in Brazil once when the president of Brazil came along and said, you know, we've had this kind of economic miracle in Brazil and the country's done extremely well. The problem is the people are doing very badly. And it seems that it's often, that is often the way. And of course, that's what austerity politics is about, is actually allowing that the, 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 the country is doing very well, but the people are actually suffering under a regime of intense... Uh, austerity. And, but this is something that, that's, that's very important uh, for understanding the dynamics of capital and you can see it back in the chapter of course on the Industrial Reserve Army. Because the larger and more weighty the Industrial Reserve Army is, the lower the wage rate is likely to be, the higher the rate of profit and the more wealth and power is accumulated uh, at the, in the top echelons of society and the more apparently uh, the society will appear to be affluent and, and appear to be doing extremely well. So this relationship between you know, wealth and poverty and the class relation across it is something which is actually built in uh, to Marx's account. The other thing, of course, is, is uh, the, on 889, uh, Marx then talks, talks to the following kind of thing. The stoical peace of mind with which the political economist regards the most shameless violation of the sacred rights of property and the grossest acts of violence against persons as soon as they are necessary in order to lay the foundation of the capitalist mode of production is shown by Sir F.M. Eden, who is moreover Tory and philanthropic in his political colouring. Locke's, Locke's big contribution was to say that private property rests and, 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 and depends upon people mixing their labor with the land. And there's a sacred right that attaches to that in the Lockean theory. But so the big problem is, how can you justify expropriating the peasantry that's you know, mixed its labor with the land? Why aren't they... Why are, the, are they the ones who have all of the rights? And at this point, um, Marx is sort of saying, well, you know, this is the hypocrisy. 
which was very much about this, this what primitive accumulation was all about. And that hypocrisy is uh, most wonderfully set up by uh, uh, the Duchess of Sutherland uh, and Highland Clearances and, uh, and, and so on. And he's got this wonderful kind of example that uh, the Duchess of Sutherland uh, uh, was getting rid of everybody off the land and was um, in a savage kind of way at the same time as she uh, uh, welcomed uh, uh, Mrs. Beecher Stowe, authoress of Uncle Tom's Cabin, and, and professed some sort of sympathy with uh, uh, the, the plight of, uh, of, of, of black slaves when, in fact, uh, she herself was actually driving people off the land. So... The expropriation of the agricultural population has this long history. But then chapter 28 is a very sh short one where he says basically, okay, you drove all these people off the land, then what did you do to them? Uh, you then blamed them for being vagabonds and impoverished. Uh, and you passed legislation which basically incarcerated them and started to actually then, you know, so again we get the the incarceration politics which starts to come here. Uh, uh, these men, he, he says on Open of 28, um, these men suddenly dragged from their accustomed mode of life could not immediately adapt themselves to the discipline of their new condition. They were turned in massive quantities into beggars, robbers and vagabonds, partly from inclination in most cases under the force of circumstances. Uh, the fathers of the present working class were chastised for their enforced transformation into vagabonds and paupers. Legislation treated them as voluntary criminals and assumed that it was entirely within their powers to go on working under the old conditions which in fact no longer existed. Now, it's, again, there's, there's, there's a long history of this and I think it's important to, 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 to register it. Uh, that uh, the criminalization of unemployed people, the criminalization of uh, populations who've been in effect, in effect dispossessed and thrown to one side uh, is not something which belongs simply to the sort of 17th and 18th centuries. It's something which is with us today. And, and I think that uh, we have to uh, take account of that. So this chapter on bloody legislation against the expropriated since the end of the 15th century and the forcing down of wages by act of parliament the first uh, parliamentary legislation on wages was was not about uh, legislating the length of the working day it was about you know bringing wages down <coughs> the statute of laborers uh, and also uh, you were also going to have legislation against trade unions against workers combinations uh, which are treated, as he says on 901, as heinous crimes from the 14th century until 1825, the year of the repeal of the laws against combinations. Uh, so, well, we, you know, the social process throws these people off the land, gives them no visible means of existence, and then says it's their fault that they're, they're, they're the vagabonds and unemployed, and they're, they're therefore have to be treated as criminals and incarcerated. 
Chapter 29, well, that's about the genesis of the capitalist farmer, and it's about it's just two pages long, more or less, and the agricultural revolution is, is, was very much about uh, uh, try, trying to, 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 to bring capital onto the land uh, and to convert the great landed proprietors into landed capitalists. So this conversion is not very well analyzed here, but you'll get it in volume three, and the volume three is about the origination of uh, land rent and all the rest of it. But Marx is very well aware that the agricultural revolution, which was going to raise productivity on the land, was a very important precursor for the industrial revolution. Uh, and uh, that this, this was therefore something that uh, was, was part and parcel of uh, this original accumulation because productivity on the land had to be increased uh, if there was going to be enough uh, in the way of food supply uh, to, to support uh, a, a regular working, working class that was fully employed as opposed to a, a class that was incarcerated in poor houses. Um, and that then leads into chapter 30, which is impact of agricultural revolution on industry creation of a home market for industrial capital uh, and uh, this is this is a, uh, a continuation of the argument before that the industrial the agricultural revolution uh, created the, the, the home market uh, and the home market therefore allowed industrial capital to satisfy uh, New new social needs would would be were, were, were going to be sort of set up. Um, <clears throat> so the creation of the internal market became uh, uh, significant. And again, this is specific to Britain. Uh, and then, capitalist agriculture interacts very much with industry, uh, as he says right towards the end of the. This a consistent foundation is nine twelve. Consistent foundation for capitalist agriculture could only be provided by large scale industry in the form of machinery. It is large scale industry which radically expropriates the vast majority of the agricultural population and completes the divorce between agriculture and rural domestic industry, tearing up the ladder's roots which are spinning and weaving. It therefore also conquers the entire home market for industrial capital for the first time. Marx is here anticipating the industrialization of agriculture. Uh, it took a long time to industrialize. Really, most agriculture only got industrialized after 1945. But then it came fairly late. But Marx is actually saying very much that machinery starts to be significant. And of course, the first uh, combine harvesters and things like that were just beginning to be discussed. Uh, all kinds of uh, new machinery for uh, 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 tilling the soil and, uh, and the like were also becoming available. And then in chapter 31, we get a very brief uh, analysis uh, of the genesis of industrial capitalist. Uh, but here he's, he's going to introduce some of the themes which exist in the Communist Manifesto which is the, the, the genesis of the industrial capitalist 
was something which was going to be uh, uh, revolutionized, uh, but revolutionized because of certain uh, transformations that were occurring uh, in the world market. And as he says at the opening here, the snail's pace of advance under this method by no means corresponded with the commercial requirements of the new world market, which had been created by the great discoveries by the end of the 15th century. But the Middle Ages had handed down two distinct forms of capital which ripened in the most varied economic formations of society, and which before the era of the capitalist mode of production nevertheless functioned as capital, usurer's capital, and merchant's capital. So these are the two forms which start to reconfigure uh, economic and political power, uh, by, partly because money capital, formed by means of usury and commerce, was prevented from turning into industrial capital by the feudal organization of the countryside and the guild organization. For this reason, the new manufacturers were established at seaports or at points in the countryside which were beyond the control of the old municipalities and their guilds. Hence, in England, the bitter struggle of the corporate towns against these new seed beds of industry. Industrial development in the Industrial Revolution occurred in small villages with names like Manchester and Birmingham and so on. It could not get established in places like Norwich and Bristol which had, and, and York and so on, which had corporatist forms of government. Well, they, were, they were bourgeois, but they were bourgeois, medieval, merchant, capitalist. Uh, the, the wage labor force was, was guild, uh, organized and, and trained. Uh, that therefore uh, monopoly power in those in, in, in those cities was very important to break through, but co you couldn't do it as an industrialist. You tried to set up uh, an industry in in one of these towns like uh, uh, Bristol or Bath or or, or, or Norwich, or you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get anywhere. So what you had to do is you had to go to greenfield sites. You had to go to some village where there was no power structure and therefore you would set up. Uh, and, and actually it's interesting about the whole history of uh, capital in relationship to social and political organization. Uh, one of the things in this country you notice is that a lot of uh, automobiles when they start, uh, automobile sector kind of, uh, Detroit was too well organized so it goes to Tennessee or it goes to Alabama it goes to or those kinds of places where there's no organization that's going to really, uh, really prevent it. Uh, so that the, the, the seeking out of greenfield sites becomes uh, part and parcel of the, of, of, of the industrial strategy. And Marx is talking about that uh, there. But he's also talking about uh, the rise of uh, 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 a new, new form, you know, an expansion of monetization uh, through uh, primitive accumulation, uh, which is going to be going on through uh, colonies, the national debt, the modern tax system, the system of protection. These methods, he says on 915, depend in part on brute force, for instance, the colonial system, but they all employ the power of the state, the concentrated and organized force of society to hasten, as in a hothouse, the process of transformation of feudal mode of production into a capitalist mode, and to shorten the transition. Force, says Marx, is the midwife of every old society, which is pregnant with a new one. It is itself an economic power. 
this leads, of course, to uh, a, a very interesting kind of uh, way of, of thinking. There's, that Marx starts to propose that actually some of the techniques which were involved in, in, in the West Indian plantation cultivation were very important in terms of um, developing the, uh, the kinds of capacities that were necessary to run a factory system back in Britain. In other words, the colonies were a, 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 a sort of teething ground uh, for certain managerial practices. And those colonies, uh, the West Indian plantation system uh, was, uh, in, a, in a sense, a kind of a, a, an agrarian large-scale factory uh, which had to be managed uh, as, a, as, a, as a coherent entity. Nobody had experience of doing that in, in, in the large factories that eventually came to be the case in Britain, but uh, some of the experience that came from West Indies. Uh, so that the colonial system uh, had... Uh, an importance both in terms of undermining the feudal power and this is something which is very important in the, in the Communist Manifesto where Marx sort of talks about the way in which capital, merchant capital uh, couldn't get a hold, couldn't get past the feudal system on the land itself so basically what merchant capital did was to go out beyond and it used its its mobility and its power uh, global power uh, to actually undermine the feudal power which was land-based and very fairly stagnant and static so if you have a, a mobile geographical power which is actually accumulating wealth uh, as it moves uh, versus a static uh, power base then the static power base is likely in the end to be undermined and so Marx <coughs> is telling this story here uh, about this uh, which meant that industrial supremacy brings with it commercial supremacy <coughs> in the period of manufacture it is the reverse commercial supremacy produces industrial predominance <coughs> and then he talks about the system of public credit and of national debt. And this is, a, 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 again, the beginnings of the transformation of, of finance, capital and debt and all the rest of it into the very distinctively capitalist mode of, uh, of indebtedness. Uh, the modern doctrine, he says, that a nation becomes the richer the more deeply it is in debt. Public credit becomes the credo of capital, and with the rise of national debt-making, lack of faith in the national debt takes the place of the sin against the Holy Ghost, for which there is no forgiveness. The public debt becomes one of the most powerful levers of primitive accumulation. Again, this is something that is very, you know, didn't exist in ancient Sumer. The public debt, then, is carried over, uh, and we can read this out, as with the stroke of an enchanter's wand, it endows unproductive money with the power of creation and thus turns it into capital without forcing it to expose itself to the troubles and risks 
inseparable from its employment in industry or even in usury, the state's creditors actually give nothing away, for the sum lent is transformed into public bonds, easily negotiable, which go on functioning in their hands just so much as much hard cash would. But furthermore, and quite apart from the class of idle rentiers thus created, the improvised wealth of the financiers who play the role of middlemen between the government and the nation and the tax farmers, merchants and private manufacturers, for whom a good part of every national loan performs the service of a capital fallen from heaven. Apart from all these people, the national debt has given rise to joint stock companies, to dealings in negotiable effects of all kinds, and to speculation. In a word, it has given rise to stock exchange gambling and the modern bankocracy. Here, too, we're looking at a revolutionary transformation, which is not a subject of discussion throughout the rest of Volume 1. This is the kind of thing that gets discussed uh, in Volume 3 of, of, of Capital. And <clears throat> on 920, the accumulation of the national debt has no more infallible measure than the successive rise in the stocks of these banks, whose full development dates from the founding of the Bank of England in 1694. Bank of England, 1694, terribly important uh, transformative moment in the way in which indebtedness was organized. Uh, and if you want to sort of say, okay, how are we going to look at this kind of the rise of indebtedness and the rise of, uh, of, of a debt system and so on, of a, of a capitalist debt system, uh, one of the focal points would be uh, the constitution of the Bank of England uh, in 1694, which uh, I would always characterize as being <coughs> the creation of what I call the state finance nexus. The Bank of England is not a state institution. Uh, it is the pinnacle of the banking system. But it is the pinnacle of the banking system which is supposed to supervise the whole banking system. And at the same time, it is under state charter. So state power is embedded in it and state has some relationship to the Bank of England that is typically subjected uh, to uh, the Treasury Department of the, of the state apparatus. So when you put the Treasury Department, the state apparatus, and the Bank of England together, you get this kind of state finance nexus. Uh, and this is, this is, this is a, 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 yeah, state finance uh, started to become terribly important, particularly during these years because of the wars that were being fought and you needed to finance the wars. How are you going to finance the wars? You're going to get bankrupt. You had to borrow money in order to so to, to prosecute the war, so you get a kind of a, 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 finance, a militaristic finance state apparatus, uh, which is, 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 is trying to manage its finances to fight, fight the war, at the same time as it's having to borrow, and it has to borrow from the pinnacle of the banking system, which is the Bank of England. So the Bank of England and the, and the British Treasury uh, become, if you like, the, 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 the nexus uh, which is, which is, when I say it's a nexus, doesn't mean it's, it works smoothly. In fact, they can often be at loggerheads. But that's still the case today. I mean, in the United States, uh, when there was all this problem in 2008, who came together to, to sort it all out? Well, it was, it was Ben Bernanke of the Federal Reserve and Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury. 
And I just sat down in a room and said, here we are, this is what we're going to do. And that's where you saw the state finance nexus in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in motion. And what you see Mark's doing here is to kind of say, okay, this, this, this formation of the Bank of England is a crucial moment. It's going to can be connected also to uh, finance, uh, to the financial aspects of the, the state apparatus, even though he's not really dealing in much great detail with that. Uh, the writings of the time, he says, uh, show what effect was produced on their contemporaries by the sudden emergence of this brood of bankocrats, financiers, rentiers, brokers, stock jobbers, etc. So this, the formation of uh, all of these characters, uh, along with the national debt, and he then goes on to say it wasn't only international debt, it was also an international credit system, so that you'll find the bankers like the Rothschilds in Europe would have uh, kind of international connections right across uh, Europe uh, and would uh, actually uh, you know, have a tremendous uh, uh, political and, and economic power. Uh, and uh, finance capital uh, is actually the most liquid form of capital. Uh, commodity capital, production capital, don't move so easily. Finance capital can move very quickly. It's what I might call the butterfly form of capital. So it starts to move around and, 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 and have therefore have an international dimension. Uh, so he talks about the, the complicated relationship that existed between Holland and England in the 18th century in terms of who uh, who had the gold or who had the silver. By the beginning of the 18th century, Holland's manufacturers had been far outstripped. It had ceased to be the nation preponderant in commerce and industry. One of its main lines of business, therefore, from 1701 to 1776, was the lending out of enormous amounts of capital, especially to its great rival England. So, in a sense, uh, Holland was... Uh, conniving at its own demotion uh, within the international order by lending to its great rival England. And then Marx says, the same thing is going on today between England and the United States. A great deal of capital, which appears today in the United States without any birth certificate, was yesterday in England the capitalized blood of children. So capital surpluses start being moved around and the national debt is one of the places where, where the capital surpluses go to. And you start to see uh, emerging here the circulation of interest-bearing capital as a distinctive form of capital uh, circulation. And that is something that's going to be taken up in Volume 3, uh, but is not, has, we haven't, uh, in a sense, had any idea about that from what's going on in Volume 1. Um, The great part of the public debt, this is 921, and the fiscal system corresponding to it have played in the capitalization of wealth and the expropriation of the masses has led many writers like Cobbett and others to seek here incorrectly the fundamental cause of the misery of the people in modern times. Now, <clears throat> I think there's an interesting question of how we look upon the debt 
question right now. We tend to attribute to the debt the fact that the fact that there is such a difficulty of daily life in many parts of the world is 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 because of the indebtedness. So we we tend to say the problem is the indebtedness. But I think what Marx is doing is to throw some sort of question mark on that. Uh, and that we should be looking beyond the, debt, the, the, the indebtedness uh, to what it is that lies uh, behind it, which is the circulation of capital uh, in a certain, certain form, and that the circulation of capital, insofar as it's leaving large segments of the population bereft of possible uh, employment opportunities, that that's the real problem. So I think there's an interesting uh, suggestion here by the way Marx is setting this up. Um, so he says, colonial system, public debts, heavy taxes, protection, commercial wars, these offshoots, and it's important he calls them offshoots, of the period of manufacture swell to gigantic proportions during the period of infancy of large-scale industry. The birth of the latter is celebrated by a vast Herod-like slaughter of the innocents. Like the Royal Navy, the factories were recruited by means of the press gang. And then he talks about this guy Eden, who he uh, is constantly uh, horrified by. That Eden, he said, is indifferent to the horrors of the expropriation of the agricultural population from the soil. Uh, though he shows great self-satisfaction in congratulating his country on this process, which was essential in order to establish capitalist agriculture. So we should not attribute to the debt machine uh, uh, an independent causative power. We have to look at what it is that creates interest-bearing capital, how interest-bearing capital circulates and seeks uh, indebtedness as its rate of return, and yes, it's problematic, but it is not the origin of the story. The origin of the story is the production of the surplus capital, which becomes uh, the interest-bearing capital, which which is seeking a rate of return through uh, through uh, funding the public debt or, or funding also uh, private debt. So the industrial capitalist then is uh, uh, coming into being. The result, he says, is this, that to unleash the, uh, quote, eternal natural laws of the capitalist mode of production, when he says natural, they're not natural in the sense given by nature, they're they're natural to capital. And I think it's always important to make that uh, observation. The eternal natural laws of the capitalist mode of production to complete the process of separation between the workers and the conditions of their labor, to transform at one pole the social means of production and subsistence into capital, and at the opposite pole the mass of the population into wage laborers, into the free laboring poor, that artificial product of modern history. If money, according to Auger, comes into the world with a congenital blood stain on one cheek, capital comes dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt. Uh, 
So the violence of this whole process is very important for, for Marx to uh, emphasize, which leads him to, in chapter 32 to the historical tendency of capitalist accumulation in which he kind of says, well, all of this is in the prehistory of capital. Uh, again, uh, he, he says that it flourishes, unleashes the whole of its energies, attains its adequate classical form. He's got this classical form in here again. Only where the worker is the free proprietor of the conditions of his labor and sets them in motion himself, where the peasant owns the land he cultivates or the artisan owns the tool with which his accomplished performer. The mode of production presupposes the fragmentation. It excludes the concentration of means of production. It is compatible only with a system of production and society moving within narrow limits. And then he goes on to sort of talk about new forces and new passions spring up in the bosom of society, forces and passions which feel themselves to be fettered by that society. It has to be annihilated. It is annihilated. So here he comes to the idea that it's going to be absolutely overcome. Uh, it's annihilation, the transformation of the individualized and scattered means of production into socially concentrated means of production. The transformation, therefore, of the dwarf-like property of the many into the giant property of the few and the expropriation of the great mass of the people from the soil, from the means of subsistence and the instruments of labor, this terrible and arduously accomplished expropriation of the mass of the people forms the prehistory of capital. And then he goes on, and the last part of this is a kind of a, 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 a rerun of the Communist Manifesto, uh, in which uh, we're going, what we're going to see is a constant decrease in the number of capitalist magnates who usurp and monopolize all the advantages of this process of transformation. The mass of misery, oppression, slavery, degradation, and exploitation grows. But with this, there also grows the revolt of the working class, a class constantly increasing in numbers and trained, united, and organized by the very mechanism of the capitalist process of production. The monopoly of capital becomes a fetter upon the mode of production which has flourished alongside and under it. The centralization of the means of production and the socialization of labor reach a point at which they become incompatible with their capitalist integument. This integument is burst asunder the knell of capitalist private property sounds, the expropriators are expropriated. Now, this is sort of pure rhetoric of the Communist Manifesto. And you kind of sort of say, well, you know, how did Marx get round uh, to that, uh, this uh, particular point in, in, in the text? And why does he, in a sense, reintroduce this whole idea of a revolutionary uh, response to the increasing centralization why does he treat it as a rather mechanical kind of uh, kind of process that it, it, it's going it's, it's going to be annihilated it is annihilated it's going to be increasingly concentration in the end a few people will own all of the means of production and the mass of the people will rise up and expropriate it and therefore the expropriation will be, the expropriators will be expropriated um, great well you know we're still waiting of course um, but this is the, and I think I think in part the choppiness of this whole presentation is, is about sort of kind of saying, okay, let's imagine this, let's take this, let's take that, 
let's take this cut, let's take that cut, and various cuts, and so you get to the final cut, which is sort of where he wants to be, apart from the fact uh, that there's another chapter, uh, which is the modern theory of colonization. Um, and I, I've always had a problem, uh, you know, okay, the expropriators are expropriated in, in, in chapter 32, why wouldn't you leave it there and kind of say, okay, you know, yay, let's you know, run with this revolution, it's, it's on its way. Why do we suddenly have this modern theory of colonization? And, and it's taken me, you know, I'm always kind of mystified by it, but the best uh, example, the best, uh, I think, uh, explanation I have is that Marx felt he had to deal with the theory of colonization for one very, very, very important reason, which is that Hegel had talked about colonization as one of the ways in which a society which was becoming increasingly polarized uh, could deal with its internal attentions by relief through colonial expansion. Now Hegel does this in uh, his text on the philosophy of right. Uh, Marx wrote a critique of the philosophy of right. But what's interesting is that he never wrote a critique of the passages where, where Hegel kind of says, the dialectic of a capitalist society is such that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And in fact, the language there is almost identical with the language which Marx uses uh, when he's talking about the general law of capitalist accumulation, when he kind of says the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And, and, and uh, the, the, the working class is reduced to this miserable state. Uh, when, you, when you're reading that and when you, re when you go and read the, what Hegel kind of said about it, you kind of say, well, this is, this is almost like a repetition. Uh, a repetition of, uh, of Hegel. And so, so he and Hegel kind of said, uh, well, maybe we could rescue the problem of the increasing polarization of wealth and poverty by actually redistributing uh, some of the wealth from the rich to the poor. But then he looked at the, and just said simply, the number of rich is so small and the number of poor so large that you'll never be able to do it, so that it's impossible to stabilize society, and in fact, what we're going to get in, in the society is what he called a rabble of paupers who are going to be rising up and rest, and it's going to be you know, a disaster. So Hegel sort of uh, depicts all of this, and it is like the general law of capitalist accumulation, but then he says, this explains why it is that capitalist societies uh, engage in colonial practices because the colonial practice allows the surplus of capital and labor to go abroad and to reestablish itself and give a livelihood to the population. And, and so Hegel seems to be advocating what I would call a spatial fix, if you like, to uh, the, the, the dialectical tensions inherent in, in, in a capitalist society that he seems to be saying there is a, a spatial fix to it by, by, by colonial practices. 
Now, if Marx was aware of that, though he doesn't quote it here, if he's very well aware that that's what Hegel is saying, then he has to say something about, well, that colonial practice is not actually going to work. And the way he does this is not to go and look at what's going on in the colonies. So there's nothing in here really much about what goes, you know, what, what colonial practices were out about. But he looks at the theories of, uh, of colonization which are put forward by Wakefield. And, and Wakefield was kind of uh, involved in uh, the settlement of Australia. And, 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 and what Wakefield did was to kind of say, well, <coughs> What you need to do uh, in order to have a decent uh, uh, economy is you cannot let uh, migrants who go to Australia or go to the United States for that reason, migrants go and actually become self-sufficient because capital cannot, cannot exist without wage labor. So that in order for capital to reproduce itself, it has to reproduce wage labor. And so Wakefield was pursuing legislation which would prevent workers from escaping to some frontier and living on their own and not being bothered with, with, with uh, sort, of, sort of the market. You have to stop that. How do you stop that? Well, you put a reserve price on the land so that there's a barrier between workers coming into Australia and workers going on the land. Uh, they have to be wage laborers in order to save enough money to buy the land. So what, what, what Wakefield does is to come up with a whole kind of theory of colonization which says in order to colonize you must not let have free land access. Uh, and he clearly saw that this was one of the problems of the United States. Wages were higher in the United States because of the, the scarcity of labor even though there was mass migration. And the scarcity of labor arose because, okay, people would come to Philadelphia and they would be wage laborers and they'd say, oh, screw this, I don't like this, I can go to the frontier and set myself up on the frontier and become a self-sufficient uh, farmer or something of that kind. So the result of that was there was scarcity of labor in, in the United States, which leads Marx earlier in the, in the in capital to say, because there's a scarcity of labor in the United States, uh, the, United, the United States is more interested in labor-saving technology. And the, and, the, and the U.S. applies labor-saving technologies uh, because of the scarcity of labor. Uh, Britain invents the technologies but doesn't deploy them because there's no scarcity of labor in Britain. So Marx has already made that sort of argument partly. So here is what he's saying is that, that Wakefield sets up the colonization theory in such a way as to show something which is absolutely critical, which is that capital cannot exist independent of wage labor. And that therefore, you need always to form a wage labor force in order for capital to work. And that's why this chapter is, 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 is in here. Now, this is then a refutation of Hegel, who doesn't actually say the the, the dialectical dilemmas of a, of a capitalist society will be solved by colonization, but he kind of says uh, colonization is, 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 seems to be a way out. 
But what Marx is doing is, is refuting Hegel on that and kind of saying all that colonization does is to actually reintroduce the capital-labor relation on a broader geographical scale. That in the end, the United States becomes a capitalist country because it's, it's got wage labor. Australia will never become a capitalist country if it doesn't have wage labor, and it's not going to have wage labor unless it, it, it actually prevents the population that's arriving there from free access to the land. So this is, I think, the reason why this modern theory of colonization is here. Uh, it's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure of that. I mean, and the, the curious thing is, I mean, in the companion to uh, Marx's capital, I, I sort of cite uh, all the passages from, from Hegel, and you see that the, the parallel uh, between what Marx is saying about you know the increasing impoverishment of the, of the working classes and what Hegel's saying is it's almost identical language and I kind of feel that you know Marx either forgot where he got it from which which happens all the time of course or or, or actually you know people are pretty cavalier about uh, about you know what they what they reference and what they did not and Marx often incites people without uh, saying who he's, who, he's, who he's citing. But nevertheless, I think this, the, the, the positionality of uh, colonial practices, and as far as Marx is concerned, you know, capitalist colonial practices are always about wage-labor formation. And, and therefore, the, the, the notion of primitive accumulation uh, is going to carry over to the colonial practices. Now, this also raises another question which I'd be much intrigued by. To what degree are these practices which Marx talks about as being in the prehistory of capitalism actually continuing to this day? And I think the answer, of course, is yes, they are continuing to this day, but uh, in what sense can we say they're continuing to this day? Clearly, uh, Chinese peasantry has been converted into a wage labor force over the last 30 years or so, 40 years or so. And, and, and if you look at it, you would say this is a classic process of primitive accumulation. Uh, but China had not been, as it were, inserted into the capitalist system uh, until, uh, you know, 1978, so, so primitive accumulation is something that, that, that continues to go on. Now, the person who paid most attention to this idea was Rosa Luxemburg. And uh, so I often kind of uh, quote Rosa Luxemburg, who kind of says, well, I'll, I'll, I'll read you what she, she, uh, she says. Uh, Uh, in the accumulation of capital, her book on the accumulation of capital, she kind of says, okay, look, there are two different forms of exploitation we have to look at. One concerns the commodity market and the place where surplus value is produced, the factory, the mine, 
the agricultural estate. Regarded in this light, accumulation is a purely economic process, with its most important phase a transaction between the capitalist and wage labourer. Here in form, at any rate, peace, property and equality prevail, and the keen dialectics of scientific analysis, and this was, she argued, Marx's signal of achievement in capital, were required to reveal how the right of ownership changes in the course of accumulation into appropriation of other people's property, how commodity exchange turns into exploitation and equality becomes class rule. In other words, she's there saying, the world of capital, Marx's capital as a book, uh, it depicts this, this relationship. And it is indeed what Marx, I think, brilliantly re reveals. But the other aspect of the accumulation of capital concerns the relations between capitalism and the non-capitalist modes of production, which start making their appearance on the international stage. Its predominant methods are colonial policy, an international loan system, a policy of spheres of interest, and war. Force, fraud, oppression, looting are openly displayed without any attempt at concealment, and it requires an effort to discover within this tangle of political violence and contests of power the stern laws of the economic process. Now, her particular argument is that stealing from non-capitalist modes of production and the oppression of uh, non-capitalist modes of production are absolutely critical for understanding uh, this other aspect of the accumulation of capital. But I would take it in another direction and say we also have to deal not only with primitive accumulation, which is about the formation of a wage labor force and then the formation of capital accumulation on top of that wage labor force. It's not only about that, but it's also about processes of robbery, fraud and the rest of it, which continue to play a role within the history of capital accumulation which suggests that there are modes of capital accumulation that, that, go, that occur outside of the exploitation of living labor in production. And what are those forms of exploitation uh, which allow this to happen? Well, it turns out that Marx himself has, has really uh, uh, identified uh, some of this, which is internal to the capitalist mode of production as opposed to external. Because what Rosa Luxemburg was basically saying was that colonial practices and imperialist extractions are what actually form the basis of this alternative form of accumulation. And in her theory of capital accumulation, you couldn't sustain capital accumulation by the exploitation of living labor in the way that, that, that Marx describes. She says, basically, you need something else. You need something outside of that. And that something outside of is imperialist extractions, imperialist dominations, which is her theory of imperialism. And that is a way of extracting value from empires and extracting value from colonies in such a way as to support the continued dynamism of a capitalist mode of production, which then leads to the question of what happens when uh, there's nowhere left to extract from. And her view was that would be the end of capitalism. Uh, but, but 
I think we need to look instead at, at uh, the forms of extraction that go on within capitalism rather than outside of it. And Marx himself has uh, some, some interesting uh, arguments about this. And I, I would take you back uh, into uh, you know, some of his uh, uh, arguments about the centralization of capital back on 778, which is about the general law of capitalist accumulation, uh, where Marx says on 778, commensurately with the development of capitalist production and accumulation, there also takes place a development of the two most powerful levers of centralization, competition and credit. At the same time, the progress of accumulation increases the material amenable to centralization, i.e. the individual capitals, while the expansion of capitalist production creates, on the one hand, the social need and, on the other, the technical means for those immense industrial undertakings which require previous centralization of capital for their accomplishment. Today, therefore, the force of attraction which draws together individual capitals and the tendency to centralization are both stronger than ever before. But if the relative extension and energy of the movement towards centralization is determined to a certain degree by the magnitude of capitalist wealth and the superiority of the economic me mechanism already attained, the advance of centralization does not depend in any way on a positive growth in the magnitude of social capital. And this is what distinguishes centralization from concentration, the latter being only another name for reproduction on an extended scale. Centralization may result from a mere change in the distribution of already existing capitals, from a simple alteration in the quantitative grouping of the component parts of social capital. Capital can grow into powerful masses in a single hand in one place, because in other places it has been withdrawn from many individual hands. In other words, centralization supplements the work of accumulation by enabling industrial capitalists to extend the scale of their operations. And then Marx talks about joint stock companies. In effect, what we start to look at here is a whole dynamic of big capital taking over little capital and, and increasingly just sopping up. If you look at how you know, an organization like Google has grown, you would say, how many you know, startups does it take over? How, how much gobbling up has it done? Has the accumulation of wealth in Google been due to that gobbling up of accumulation from, from uh, elsewhere? And as Marx kind of says elsewhere, the, the, you know, the, the stock exchange sharks sort of uh, you know, capture all the small fishes around. So in a sense, uh, accumulation, uh, if... if Existing accumulation was, was there, but the, the very fact of you becoming much more centralized means that there is accumulation out of the act of centralization itself. Uh, and therefore, we have to look at processes of that sort, in which uh, I re always refer to as accumulation by dispossession. 
And this is not the same as primitive accumulation. This is another mode of accumulation, which, for example, comes out of merger uh, activity, which comes out of takeovers, comes out of uh, private equity companies going in, taking over a particular company, asset stripping, then turning it into something that's a lean and mean little corporation and then selling it back at a profit. It comes out of uh, the foreclosure crisis in which people had to give up assets and long come hedge funds and buy up all of the assets and accumulate vast amounts of wealth by holding those assets for a brief period of time and then trading them back. It comes out of financial crises like the financial crisis of 1997-98 in Southeast Asia, which was essentially one which was produced and manufactured by the capital system, the, the, the financial system, cutting off the flow of liquidity. If you cut the flow of liquidity to well-functioning corporations and they can't refinance their debt, then they go bankrupt. And they have to sell out, and they're going to sell out at fire sale prices. So what happened was the banks cut the liquidity, no liquidity. A lot of firms start to go bankrupt. The, the banks come in and buy them up at fire sale prices. Then the liquidity flows back in, and off you go. Uh, things start to, 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 to improve, and the banks sell off the companies back at a huge profit. Now, the banks have not actually produced anything. But they've accumulated a vast amount of, of value through these operations. The same thing happens when actually you get an austerity politics. I mean, what, what does an international monetary fund structural adjustment program look like? Yeah, Mexico gets into debt in 1982. Can't pay its debt. Is it going to go bankrupt? You can't let it go bankrupt because if it goes bankrupt, all the lenders are going to lose uh, uh, their, their investments. Who invested in Mexican debt? Well, actually, the New York investment banks. Why did they invest in Mexico debt? Because they got all of the money from the, the Gulf region when the oil price went up in the 1970s. And they forced the, 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 the rulers of the Gulf region to take the surplus capital and give it to them to invest. And Walter Riston basically said, in, I forget what it was, about 1976 or 77, he said, OK, we've got all this extra money. We've got to invest it somewhere. Where are we going to invest it? It's not a good idea to invest it in corporations. You invest it in countries. This is what Marx is kind of saying about the national debt. We invest it in countries. Because, he said, countries can never disappear. Corporations can. Countries can't. We can always go find them. So they lend lots of those. So they go to Mexico and they say, we've got all this money. Take it, take it. And, 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 and build on it. And Mexico needed the money, so it borrowed it. About four years later, all of a sudden the interest rates go flying up. Mexico can't pay. So what does it do? Goes to the, you know, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna be allowed to to renege on its debt, so it gets bailed out. 
the International Monetary Fund and the US Treasury go in and they lend the, lend the money. The state finance nexus goes in, lends them the money. Okay. And they're bailed out. But in return for that, what does Mexico have to do? It has to introduce austerity. It has to privatize. It has to privatize the ajidos. It has to do all of these kinds of things. That whole structural adjustment kind of policy. The, the living standard of Mexicans went down by a quarter in the next three, four, five years. That's the way in which this works. And that is accumulation by dispossession. You're dispossessing people of their livelihoods. And you're often dispossessing them of their rights. I have a colleague in Greece who retired three years ago. When I was in Greece recently, he was celebrating the fact that he got the first payment of his pension after three years. He's had three years, no payment of pension. This is, see, this is what I would call accumulation by dispossession. You're dispossessing somebody of a right in some way. You're not paying something. And then you can actually uh, bring it back into the dynamics of the situation. So I would want to argue that Luxembourg is right to say that there's an alternative form of accumulation at work here. Uh, but it's not only the accumulation which goes on through the extraction of uh, value from the rest of the world through the imperial practices. That has been true. That's been there, and it still continues. So we can still talk about extractivism as another form of accumulation. At the same time as we can talk about accumulation through uh, exploitation of living labor in production, but we can also talk about accumulation through the dispossession of the value which people already control. So that primitive accumulation is not uh, primitive anymore in the sense that it's not original. It's not uh, there in the precursor as uh, both Hannah Arendt and, and uh, uh, Rosa Luxemburg insisted. We have to see uh, the kinds of processes that Marx is talking about uh, actually continuing into, into the present era. And I would make the argument that over the last 30 or 40 years, uh, accumulation by dispossession has become a, a far more prominent in terms of the dynamics of how capitalist society is working. Marx himself tends, in the way this is set up, to say, well, all of this happened back then. After capital gets established, and all you know, and and all, all the fraud and all the rest of it has been committed through merchant capitalist extractions and all the rest of it. After all that's happened, uh, the system, which is the first system that Rosa Luxemburg describes, which is the kind of the smooth, uh, according to Marx, anyway, the smooth kind of continuity of accumulation processes. Uh, over over time, where capital gets reproduced in the way that Marx is describing, um, yeah, that 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 is one part of the story, but I think that it's an inadequate part of the story compared to some of the other forms of 
uh, of uh, extraction of value are, are, are going on. So I would want to I would want to sort of um, try to push a little bit on this whole stuff on on on. Uh, primitive accumulation and say, well, actually, it continues into the present, but it also takes rather different forms from the ones which Marx uh, allocates to it, because he is concerned primarily here with how did wage labor come to be, and how did, it, how did the wage labor market come to be the way it is? And that's the, 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 main, the main thing he's looking at. Some of these other elements, like the role of merchants' capital in the defunding of the unusury and in, in, in undermining uh, feudal power and so on, all of those elements are also uh, significant in terms of opening up the possibility for a capitalist mode of production to come to be. But I would want to argue that a capitalist mode of production cannot function without certain aspects of... Uh, uh, both primitive accumulation in the sense that Marx describes it, because I've suggested primitive accumulation is a perfectly appropriate way to look at what has happened in China over the last uh, you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, but it is not an appropriate way to look at, uh, say, a structural uh, adjustment program of the IMF, uh, the way in which... Uh, Corporations declare bankruptcy, which is another great way of, uh, of, of doing this. Uh, American Airlines, United Airlines, they've all declared bankruptcy in about the last 10 or 15 years. And what you do is you go in and you, you file for bankruptcy. You keep on flying and, and all the rest of it. You file for bankruptcy and the judge says, okay, what are you going to do? Well, we can come out of bankruptcy and we can stabilize ourselves economically if... We don't have to pay pensions, and if we don't have to pay healthcare costs, so they typically sort of shed their their obligations on healthcare and pensions, which in a way is a form of robbery. It's a robbery of people of their rights, which they they they, they imagined they would have, and and uh, you know they they can kind of say, well, you know, I was looking forward to retiring. Um, and, and uh, I was expecting to retire on, I don't know, $70,000 a year or something like that, but the retirement turns out uh, not to be there, and it goes to the state uh, insurance, which only pays $35,000 a year. So somebody then finds they have to go back into the workforce in order to make ends meet. So again, this is all accumulation by dispossession as far as I'm concerned. And, and those practices and processes are, are, are all there. And if I think of for example, the, the huge foreclosure wave that existed in this country and the way in which the private equity companies have now gone out and Blackstone is now one of the biggest landlords in the country. It has, I don't know, 200,000 properties or something like that, all of which were foreclosed and it's bought up all these foreclosed properties and is now kind of uh, remarketing them and making a huge amount of money uh, out of remarketing them. So again, this is a form of appropriation of, uh, in a way, uh, legalized robbery. And uh, of course, there's a great deal of illegal uh, activity involved in this too. So primitive accumulation uh, is, is, is uh, an important uh, 
historical phenomena and uh, its history continues to this day in those societies where there's peasant societies who can still be dispossessed and turned into wage laborers. And we have seen a lot of that over the last uh, 50 years, but also there are other modes of accumulation uh, which I think should be, uh, should be looked at. So, any, any comments and questions about all of this? Or about the whole book, for that matter. Thank you again, David, and particularly for that fascinating discussion at the end about accumulation through dispossession. And it's what you seem to see is it's necessary links to accumulation through the wage labour. And you basically seem to be saying that the system of accumulation through wage labour cannot exist without accumulation through dispossession. But I'm trying to understand, like I can see why accumulation through wage labour and accumulation through dispossession would exist together and why would they complement each other. But it's not clear to me that without one, the other would collapse. Like what, what would be the mechanism by which accumulation through wage labour would collapse if there was not the opportunities available for accumulation through dispossession? How do, you, how do you mean? I mean, uh, the, um, give it to me again. Well, sorry. Yeah. I'd, my interpretation of what you were saying yeah. was, well, there's a system that, that Marx basically described through most of the earlier, uh, you know, up until these last right, little bits right, right. of volume one um, of accumulation through the wage labour process and the extraction right. of surplus value and all that. Um, and then you referred to our Rosa Luxemburg basically says, well, but that's not enough. You've got to have imperialism. Yeah, yeah. And you said, well, yes, but it's not necessarily imperialism. It's also accumulation through dispossession. You know, yeah, the, the right. IMF bailouts and that sort of thing that you talked right, about. Right, right. And I'm wondering, I can, I can see how they would, how they would support each other but I don't see why accumulation through wage labour would collapse if those other things weren't available. Oh, yeah, I, no, I'm not arguing that accumulation through wage labour is going to collapse. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm arguing that it's going to be augmented. And in part, the issue here is the increase, and this is why I think these passages where Marx is talking about increasing centralisation become important, because what, what you're looking at is um, the following the following kind of kind of problem that if the global economy when when I was 15 years old is it was let's say uh, something like uh, three trillion dollars and now it's 80 trillion dollars you're looking at an investment problem, which is how, how do you invest at a 3% rate of return or whatever it is, $80 trillion as opposed to $4 trillion. There wasn't a problem uh, 
when it was four trillion dollars with 80 trillion dollars you're looking at oh my god where are we where are we going to invest in so you've got to actually end up with a larger field across which uh, exploitation and and accumulation can progress and part of the argument here would be that uh, to the degree that uh, money is flowing through the financial system now as opposed to simply through the capitalist corporation, the financial system has to look for rates of return which are adequate. Now, what is the highest rate of return? Rates of return uh, on uh, la conventional labor exploitation tend to be fairly low. Rates of return on speculative activity in property markets, say, tend to be, in short run at least, fairly high. So you go for that kind of thing, and so Blackstone is going to do very well. Uh, and would Blackstone rather be actually uh, in Detroit making automobiles, or, or would it rather be uh, in California speculating on housing values? And the answer is there's likely to be a flow of capital capital into those aspects of the of <coughs> this, the the system which are involved in dispossession so when i say that my sense is that since the 1970s there's been more emphasis upon dispossession uh, relative to exploitation of living labor it's because the investment opportunities that exist uh, on, on on the living labor side are um, are, are rather restricted. Uh, the, 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 you know, compound, compounding rate of growth is 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 hard to sustain. Uh, whereas when you're dealing with asset values and, and 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 ripping off people through their credit cards or whatever it is, and extracting value to, through through uh, financial, you know, uh, skullduggery, uh, th those kinds of things. If 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 that, that that's much more, you know, much more remunerative, so what we're seeing is a reconfiguration of the economy around these different, uh, uh, a different a different emphasis. All the time that uh, wage labour was yielding uh, pretty good, re you know, returns. The exploitation of living labour in production was re giving good returns as it basically was in the, in the advanced capitalist world in the 1950s and 1960s into the mid-1970s. Uh, you're going to get the, uh, a kind of economy which is rather different now. Now, then that uh, comes to the question of, of what... Let's look at the major corporations that exist right now. Uh, you look at something like Google and you kind of say, well, how is it accumulating? And where's the where where's the value coming from? Well, it's not coming from wage labour very much. Most of it's coming from taking over, expropriating, uh, you know. So so I think that that, that that means we're living in a different kind of kind kind of economy. I think these other forms of uh, of, of accumulation have always been there, and I think it's interesting when you sort of reread Marx that he's he's saying. Uh, yeah, you know, centralization of capital is actually a, a, an independent form of accumulation, uh, which is different from uh, the kind of accumulation that's going on through wage labor. But I, your point, I think, is that what is being taken over is itself a product uh, of the wage labor exploitation, that the small firms that are being, you know, have been exploiting labor and have developed uh, to a certain kind of level 
uh, and then that then can be taken over and, and, and reorganized by centralized capital. So there's a relationship between, uh, between the different forms of, uh, uh, of, of exploitation. I think that that, 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 that would be that would be correct. That would be right, and I don't see one collapsing, uh, as it were, because of because of the other. Uh, I see I see uh, that it is much more limited in terms of its capacity uh, to absorb um, a, a, an ever expanding quantity of capital looking for rates of return. And and again, one of the things that crops up in here. Uh, about the primitive accumulation itself, why does Marx suddenly say, "Well, actually, when the surpluses of, of of money around, where does it go? Well, state debt. Why does it go there? Well, because you can get well, it's the Walter Riston principle: the state does not go away. Uh, you can always make your claim against the state. Now, this, so this, so investment in state debt." Uh, actually, then allowed for the formation in 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 this period of a financial rentier class, which just was you know, in, in a sense, investing in treasuries and didn't do anything. I mean, this is the kind of um, these are the kinds of characters you read about in Jane Austen novels. You know, I mean, the, she wanted to know what his prospects were. He was getting ten thousand pounds a year in rents, you know, and so you kind of go, okay, you know, so, so there were, the, 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 there were investments of that sort going, going, going into that, in that, in that world at that time too, which is why state debt was, was so important because it was a place to put surplus and, and make sure that you, you could get some rate of return, except now in the case of Greece, for example, the sovereign debt became such that they couldn't, so, in effect, because you've invested uh, or had your money invested or your rights invested in a, in a state pension fund, then the state pension fund cannot pay. And, of course, we've got a lot of that uh, problem around uh, universally right now, a lot of unfunded pension schemes. Uh, and, you know, and, 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 and nobody knows exactly what's going to happen uh, over time as more and more people find themselves... Uh, sort of bereft of an income because the, 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 that didn't that didn't work. So I think that that, that there's both a, a question of investment, uh, but also of accumulation and where the accumulation will will be and who who can appropriate. Because the, the whole kind of question of the production of value and the appropriation of value are two separate questions, and and accumulation by dispossession is very much about. Uh, or, or an organized robbery, if you like, of uh, value that's already been produced by, you know, different, different stratagems. Good evening, Professor. Uh, so I have a comment and I have a question. Uh, my comment will be, well, first of all, I, I want to thank you because during this semester, you took us like by hand, chapter by chapter, section by section, and to try to understand and discuss all these categories. And right now I feel that I have a, a, a broader perspective of, of the development of the argument. Right. Right. Through, so I want to thank that first of all. Thank you. Um, 
and related with the perspective of, of capital as, as a whole. And one can see like the, as Rosa Luxemburgo in the, in the quotation that you show us, first of all, the, the moment of beginning with the commodity and like equality of rights and all this uh, sphere. And then at the end, showing the blood of people, showing the process of people that are suffering. Right. So that process is, I remember one of the first two or, th or three sessions that were you, you were distinguishing between Marx critique to religion and certain moments of like very deep spiritual analysis and arguments that he makes during the, the whole capital at the end of the of the book but also in different moments of the of the book as such one can feel that strength you know and in that sense I, I think that that will be great to to have this double vision of capital not only as a conceptual development of some of, of categories but also about people's history people's suffering and how at the end we can feel even a task of like a prophetic task or something of having this privilege in this society of having this gaze in this general perspective of, of as humanity in the last six centuries. So what is the subject of, of capital? Who's the subject? Is it capital as such? Who's hidden there? What is the proletarian? Where can we find a, the revolutionary subject there? So that can, that will be my question comment. an interesting I think uh, uh, the the object of capital of, of Marx's capital is is capital and what it does so that we have a very clear uh, understanding of its dynamism uh, how what it does affects conditions of labor conditions of life and your you know Marx is obviously emphasizing uh, the uh, the negative impacts of uh, all of that um, I think that he, he would argue that it's open to any subject uh, to act upon uh, whatever has been learned. And I think here the, 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 the interesting, the big, one of the big questions I would uh, reflect back, back to you, or back to everybody really, would be that conventional economics does not highlight these concerns at all. Um, I mean, you could go through an economics program and never have any discussion about the length of the working day. But the length of the working day is a crucial thing in terms of people's daily lives. So how come we have a body of knowledge which is called economics, which teaches us about how to understand the economy but never mentions anything about the length of the working day and the suffering that might go from, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of questions. So there is uh, a prior kind of uh, argument which would say that what Marx has done as, a, as himself a subject 
has been to construct an understanding of the objective qualities of the system we call capitalism. Um, and in the light of that understanding, then it's up to us uh, to figure what to do about it. Uh, we could take the position that Marx is reflecting back to us uh, the conditions which attach to an unregulated, largely unregulated free market capitalism, uh, which is driven by an equalization of the rate of profit and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and as social democrats have argued, uh, we don't necessarily need to destroy the whole of this system because it has some very, very positive uh, uh, elements, uh, even in terms of Marx's own presentation. I think it's difficult to, to read Marx's presentation over technological change as if it is entirely negative. I think he sees it and you can come out, I mean, I think, I think that long chapter on machinery and, 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 and so on is, is, is ambiguous sometimes about whether this is progressive or whether it's not. And we see that, uh, so, so you, you could make the argument that, that uh, well, you don't want to dismiss uh, some of those, the, 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 those features uh, but we want to regulate it, and, and instead of uh, us being regulated and governed by abstractions, as Marx calls it, we, through conscious interventions, can, can actually regulate this system in such a way that it does what we want. Uh, and in order to do that, we would have to eliminate a large part of this class distinction. We would want to be turned into a system that didn't didn't work on on on, on that basis. So uh, there is uh, there is an argument to be made that once you understand the world in these terms, you kind of say, all right, well, we could reform. I mean, this is what Elizabeth Warren wants. I mean, you know, to regulate the thing. I'm pro-capitalist, but but let's regulate the whole thing. And 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 there are many forms of intervention and regulation. Uh, that would improve matters entirely, but we don't want to get rid of the, the, the freedoms that attach to the market and all the rest of it. So, and then, and then there's uh, an argument, which is the one that I tend to make, which is to kind of say, well, I don't think that's going to work either. That uh, we need uh, to actually move to an anti-capitalist uh, politics, which would mean not not only simply uh, regulating uh, what happens, but which starts to push towards uh, the creation of alternatives. And where in here do we start to see some kind of hints of alternatives and what kinds of alternatives might they be? Uh, we are presented at various points with some sort of imaginaries about that, but not very many. Marx himself leaves that an empty kind of question and says, basically, that's up to you, you know, to, to, to think that, that, that through. So then you uh, have the great chance of being a subject 
uh, and the subjective element. Uh, but I think one of the things that, that, that does come out here, I mean, I'm personally of the opinion, which may be a bit controversial, that, that Marx uh, is actually um, very much concerned with individual liberty and freedom. Uh, and uh, he is not trying to make the world into a kind of you know, totally collectivized. But he, he is making the argument that you cannot get to individual liberty and freedom without actually collectively organizing uh, in, in a coherent kind of way to kind of design and orchestrate a, an, an, an alternative. Um, and the way I think about this is a wonderful sort of comment that uh, uh, Henri Lefebvre, who I kind of like to read, uh, once made when, when he was asked, why am I, why are you, why are you a Marxist and not an anarchist? Because, you know, Lefebvre had some anarchistic tendencies. Down, you know, he's very close to the situationists and all that sort of thing. And he gave, I thought, a very interesting kind of response, which was, I'm a Marxist in order that one day we can all live like anarchists. <laughs> and, and I think that actually does, in some ways, capture what Marx, I think, is about. That he's a, the Marx is a Marxist because one day he wants to be an anarchist. And, and, and I think that, but, but that individual liberty and freedom is ter terribly important. And, uh, and actually, some of that comes through in, in, in the text here, I think. Although, although not very, very loudly, you have to look uh, within it. So where's the subject? Well, it's, you know, whoever wants to make themselves a subject in relationship to it. But there is a, fore a foregrounding. And the foregrounding, I think, is this kind of question of how do we understand what's going on around us? And when Marx deconstructs classical political economy and says, look, uh, they, tell, they, 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 they create these narratives, and they create these narratives in such a way that you can see certain things, but you're also fetishizing in all sorts of ways, and you've got a fetish representation of the world. So when I say to you, look, uh, how can you go and read a conventional economics textbook and not get furious at, at the sort of way in which I understand how, how the world is and the limitations that are put uh, on, on uh, understanding uh, by the conceptual apparatus which they, they build, which is, you know, very rigorous and very self-contained and very, very coherent in its own kind of way, and which can be to some degree quite persuasive, but which doesn't really answer the, the questions that we, you know, we, we really need to, to address. Thank, thank you very much, David. This is, um, I learned a lot from the lecture. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talked about the state finance nexus, and I wonder if you could say a little more about that concept and why it's useful. You mentioned 2008, um, but I, I wanted to ask you if you could maybe uh, help us think through how this category could help us understand the war economy today. Um, 
you know, should, how should we be understanding this nexus uh, in the current conjuncture, if you like? Well, insofar as the state has, uh, or, or, you know, since uh, the rise of the, the capitalist state has, has always, to some degree, been involved in the question of war making uh, and uh, military hegemony and the like. Uh, so it, it, we, we find ourselves uh, working in an economy where in part, uh, resources have to be uh, allocated to military, militaristic means. Now, the, there is a, a very interesting literature and it's emerging from the sort of, about the, 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 the state apparatus from the, uh, from the sort of 16th century onwards, which is about the fiscal military state. And that war making, uh, it was of course at the root of uh, debt formation. And, uh, and that has not gone away. Uh, but then uh, the, mil the, the, you know, the, mil the military side of things, uh, which, which is very much what the, 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 the state is about, has also, of course, certain features which are, which are connected to the corporate economy and how the corporate economy is going to be worked out. And also it's become very much part of the macroeconomic planning of any uh, capitalist state. Uh, for example, uh, during the Reagan years, uh, we had uh, a lot of this kind of neoliberal rhetoric, but at the same time, in practice, you had a, what was called military Keynesianism at the time. That you can do things politically um, for security reasons that you can't do any other way. I think it's important to remind ourselves that the interst interstate highway system of this country was not built because it was a good idea to build the interstate highway system. It was built as a security measure. Uh, and, and again, the legitimacy of certain kinds of forms of state expenditure are very much regulated, it seems to me, by, by the security question. And you can manipulate the security side by fear and all the rest of it so that uh, you know, in the 1960s, people were going on, you know, the, the Pentagon was going on about the the missile gap. Recently, they've been going on about the artificial intelligence gap between China. China is ahead. Oh my God, the Chinese are ahead. So, uh, okay, let's mobilize a lot of. So, so a large sector of the economy is now, but it, but it has always been this way. But it has become very much more this way since 1945 and through the Cold War and through all the rest of it, which was to some degree manipulated for, for, for corporate gain and, uh, and, and, and the like. So, so how, how the, the militarized side of things fits into, uh, I, mean, I mean, the Treasury, for example, uh, the one budget the Treasury will not really 
strike down for fiscal reasons is the military budget, and we see that again and again and again. It will, uh, somebody will come up with a great educational budget and the Treasury will say you can't do it because, and, and I think it's very important to understand the state is not a, a, a monolithic entity. It's, uh, it's made up of component parts and the one big component part which is crucial is always Treasury. Uh, and the Treasury will say yes or no on all kinds of uh, proposals from other departments depending upon the fiscal situation. Uh, it will rarely say no uh, to the military side of things. But then that then requires that the banking side of things will have the resources to be able to fund the military apparatus. So we have then certain choices which are made which have a lot to do with the not not so much with the but they have a lot to do with the with the with you know, the geopolitics of hegemony and how that and how that is uh, uh, is 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 being seen um, i kind of wonder what the world would look like if essentially you you you, you abolish the military everywhere I mean, I, I don't. I don't know whether the, the 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 finance, the state finance nexus would know what to do. Because I think that, uh, you know, step one of the state finance nexus. I mean, the reason it formed in the first place with the Bank of England was that the the British state had run out of money, and they went to they went to the city of London and said to the rich merchants, "Lend us the money to fight the war." And the merchant said, "No." And and uh, the military, you know, so that then led to this compromise between the banking system and uh, and and the state, and that compromise has remained intact ever since. It's it's got it's got more complicated because now, in part, the compromise involves uh, the international institutions. So you have things like the International Monetary Fund, the Bank of International Settlements, and 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 the like. So. I don't want to pretend the state finance nexus is simply, you know, the U.S. Treasury plus the uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, because you've got the other central banks in the world, and you've also got the international monetary institutions, and so on. So it's a more complicated kind of thing than just simply a couple of guys together, uh, like uh, appeared to be the case in 2008 when Hank Paulson and Ben Bernanke basically came on TV and said, this is what we're going to do. I mean, it was a, it was a bit remarkable event. Uh, so um, the military side of things, yeah. And war making, it's always been in there. Um, how to get it out seems to me to be a, 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 big, a big issue. Thank you, Professor Harvey. Uh, I want you uh, all to please join me in thanking Professor Harvey for offering Thank this course. And for uh, doing so much to popularize Marx. Uh, just a couple of final announcements that all these classes are available on YouTube. In a couple of weeks, they'll be available as audio podcasts. Um, Congratulations and thank you all for sticking it out and making it through yes, the last indeed. class and yes. reaching the luminous summits, uh, both here and online. 
and uh, we want to invite you back. Uh, we have many more great offerings here at the People's Forum. There are our brochures uh, and the table in the back. Uh, if you did borrow a copy of Volume 1 from us, from our library, please return it so the next students uh, can use it. Um, also, we want to make a special announcement that there is a reading group of Volume 2 that is starting this Saturday here at the People's Forum. It is not with Professor Harvey. It's just, it has no instructor. It's a reading group that will get together and read it weekly. Uh, it's organized by the Marxist Education Project, although David may stop in uh, for a class. And finally, we have evaluation forms. If you'd be so kind to give us some feedback on how we did at TPF, we're always trying to do things better. Also available on that table with Leanne and as well as the flyers for the volume two class. Uh, but thank you all and thanks so much to Professor thank Harvey. You.